0: Hi, my name is Chris Rose, and I'm the founder and executive director of the Renewable Energy Alaska Project, or REAP. Thanks for tuning into REAP's new podcast, Renewable Radio. This is one of our first episodes, so I want to start by telling you a little bit about who we are. When I started REAP in 2004, I recognized that the state's heavy dependence on fossil fuel made Alaskans very vulnerable to the volatility of world oil and gas prices. We may produce oil and natural gas in Alaska, but we don't get any hometown discounts. As a result, Alaskans pay some of the highest energy costs in the nation. With no fuel costs associated with wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, and other renewable energy sources, communities are able to stabilize their energy costs. Back in 2004, I also knew that the world was beginning to transition to sources of energy that didn't emit carbon dioxide to help us meet the challenge of climate change. It was clear that locally produced renewable energy and increased energy efficiency could keep precious energy dollars in our economy and at the same time reduce carbon emissions and make our communities healthier and more resilient. For the last 16 years, REAP has prided itself on bringing together a diverse group of stakeholders who all share an interest in the way we produce and consume energy in Alaska. Today, REAP is a coalition of over 75 dues paying member organizations that include electric utilities, nonprofits, Alaska Native organizations, and businesses. Through REAP's educational programming, we show thousands of K-12 through students in Alaska every year how science, technology, engineering, and math are a crucial part of the energy transition that's occurring around the world. We also connect teachers around the state with technical trainers and university professors who share an interest in clean energy careers. And through REAP's advocacy work, we collaborate to develop and implement policies that are necessary to accelerate the expansion of clean energy across Alaska. I won't go into detail on all of our initiatives, but I hope you'll continue to tune into this podcast to learn more. You can also visit our website at alaskarenewableenergy.org to dive deeper into any of our initiatives that pique your interest. And you'll also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now onto the podcast. We're starting with our Energy Speaker Series, live events that we host in the spring and fall. The series brings in experts to discuss a wide range of topics related to energy in Alaska today. Each event ends with an audience question and answer session. We'll start with four events from the fall of 2019 and end with an episode recorded in March 2020, just before the rest of our spring public events were canceled due to COVID-19. The five topics featured are electric vehicles, building a clean energy economy in Alaska, pathways to clean energy in the rail belt, tidal and hydrokinetic energy, and building science. Please be sure to subscribe to hear our latest episodes. We're working on more material right now, and we'll be releasing those in the near future. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter on our website, alaskarenewableenergy.org. With that, we'll tune in to our first live event from last fall. Electric Vehicles, thanks for listening.
1: Now, on to tonight's evening. Um, We like to hold these public events. The Speaker Series is something that we've done uh, for a couple years now, and and we did one in the spring, and we're happy to do one in the fall. Um, We're really excited to be able to offer these for free for you, and we couldn't do that without our sponsors, so I'd like to thank our sponsorship first. Um, Our leading sponsors are BP, BP, and the Municipality of Anchorage Solid Waste Services. Um, supporting sponsors are the Demo- Denali Commission, Doyon, Chugach Electric, Siri, the Alaska Center, and the Anchorage Museum is an in-kind sponsor uh, giving us this space. So for tonight, I'm really excited about hearing, uh, hearing about electric vehicles some more. Um, just out of curiosity, who was at the Clean Power Happy Hour two weeks ago? Just show of hands couple people, great. Well, this will be a great addition to that conversation Um, and uh, you don't have to have been there to enjoy this one, Um, but if you were there, this will kind of build off of some of what was talked there and and dive into some more of the nitty gritty. Um, Yeah, and and going to that event and and from getting ready for this event, it's it's pretty obvious to me that people are interested in electric vehicles. Um, It seems pretty clear that electric vehicles are coming and headed our way um, everybody, you know, all the major manufacturers are working on them. Um, and some of the experts are saying that within 10 years, electric vehicles uh, will be the only ones being produced. There will be no more internal combustion engines being produced within 10 years. That's maybe a, an accelerated timeline, but the idea is that it's, it's happening and it's coming our way. Um, so the idea behind this conversation is to figure out what we can do to be ready for electric ve- vehicles, what we can do along the rail belt, um, with the utilities to be uh, prepared and, and be able to welcome kind of this new, new wave of energy, of transportation. Um, so yeah, I'll just leave it at that and I'll introduce our, uh, we've got one presentation and then we're gonna have a moderated panel discussion uh, and then we'll do a, a good question and answer session at the end of the uh, night. So just hold, hold questions to the end. Um, and with that, I'll introduce uh, our presenter and moderator, Shayna Kilcoin. Um, Shana is the Energy and Sustainability Coordinator for the Municipality of Anchorage Solid Waste Services. Um, She was a lead part of the Climate Action Plan and has been working uh, on electric vehicles for a little while now. And uh, yeah, I'll turn it over to Shana.
2: So like Greg said, I'm the Energy and Sustainability Manager for the Municipality of Anchorage, and I'm based at Solid Waste Services. We're housing the kind of sustainability division for the municipality, and so uh, Solid Waste Services is where you're going to see a lot of that energy come from. Um, It really is a natural fit. Everything we do is related to sustainability um, as we work to extend the life of our landfill, and it's been really exciting being there. Um, So why are we even talking about electric vehicles when we talk about climate change? Um, Very clearly, you can see here 29% of our transportation is contributing to our greenhouse gas emissions, and in Anchorage, uh, it's Even more, we're looking at 53% of our emissions coming from uh, highway motor fuels out of the, the whole piece of the pie. So the biggest place that we can have make a difference is really in transportation. And that can be tough because we are wedded to our cars. Anchorage is pretty spread out and we're used to driving places. So we worked on a climate action plan last year and we the assembly passed that in May of this year. Can I see a show of hands for those of you who knew that Anchorage had a climate action plan? Oh, that's awesome. Really, really great. Yeah. It, this is really exciting. Um, uh, the municipality and uh, Anchorage have tried a couple of times before to pass a climate action plan, and there, it always got thwarted. So, this is a really exciting movement. Um, we worked on this with the University of Alaska, they received a grant for the majority of the work. And this includes ways to reduce our contribution to climate change, reduce our emissions and pollution, and ways to adapt and prepare for those changes that we're already seeing that are due to climate change. Of course, this summer we saw record heat and wildfires, and if that's just a glimpse into our future, then we really need to work on reducing our impact and preparing for more heat and more wildfires. So we, worked on seven different sectors within the Climate Action Plan, and I'm only gonna talk about land use and transportation, specifically what the municipality is doing in regards to uh, electric vehicles and hybrids. So first of all, um, we're looking at our fleet. The municipality drives a lot of different vehicles during the day, and so we look at how can we finish our mission and save money for our taxpayers and save fuel. So one of the ways we're doing this is our police department just received 20 hybrid SUVs. So this was not a big decision. It just made economical sense when they looked at the savings in fuel that the police department is going to enjoy just by driving these. And in fact, out of this, um, these savings, most of it is from just idling. You see police cars all the time idling. Uh, They have to keep their equipment on, they have to be ready to go at all times. Uh, And so the majority of these savings are just from sitting and not even moving. It's actually really exciting. So we've got 20 of these and uh, each one is expected to save about 1,200 gallons of fuel every year. So if we just look at $3 a gallon over six years, each of these vehicles is going to be able to save about $23,000 and that's at $3 a gallon. So if prices go up, we'll be saving even more. Uh, we have a lot of vehicles within the municipality and um, we're looking at where we can electrify, where we can save money. Electric vehicles are very efficient. So our, we look at our, uh, our garbage trucks and those are getting about two and a half miles to the gallon. We've been trying to buy an electric garbage truck for a while now. and It's hard, it is an emerging technology. It's a big vehicle. Um, It's also a loud vehicle, so if we can get an electric garbage truck, you will have to actually remember to take your trash out as opposed to hearing it come down the street (laughs) and running outside, which I do regularly, um, to take your trash out. So there's lots of opportunities here. In fact, we also have an all-electric, it's the municipality's first all-electric vehicle, the Chevy Bolt. Um, We've named it Sparkles. Um, It's very shiny and pretty, Um, and here it is charging at uh, Anchorage Community Development Association's charging station. I don't know if you know that this is available, but it's at the garage on 7th and G, and when you pay to park in that garage, charging is free here, so it's really exciting. Um, And so the municipality is looking at, okay, not just our fleet, but what else can we do? We see that electric vehicles are coming. What does that mean in regards to permitting? What does that mean in regards to planning? And in regards to charging? So we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. Basically, the idea is that someday we'll be able to buy an electric vehicle in Anchorage, and you'll be able to drive to Fairbanks, if you go to Fairbanks. You'll be able to drive to Valdez, you'll be able to drive to Homer, and charge up along the way, just like you do with gas. So I'm going to stop there for now. I did want to ask a couple of polling questions of you. And I, I, it almost makes me cringe to ask this, but if you'll take out your phone, um, this is an interactive poll that we're going to do. And if you could just go to menti.com, um, it will ask you to plug in a couple of numbers. There's a code here at the top. So you'll plug in 89839. And I've only got a couple of these, so if you don't have a phone handy, uh, this won't take long, and you won't—I hope—feel left out. Um, but this is just to try to get an idea of uh, kind of who's in the crowd and who we're talking to today. The the code again. So it's menti.com, m-e-n-t-i, and then you put in eighty-nine, eighty-three, nine. Is it popping up all right? Yes. I guess I assume that because you're here, that you want to own one. (laughs) So it looks like the vast majority of us do not own an electric vehicle. Show of hands, do you want to own an electric vehicle? (laughs) Thanks, Tony. (laughs) Excellent. And uh, Greg, do you want to go to the next one? So our next question, I think it's on the right. This one you have to, you put your name into and then you'll have to push start the quiz. But your name's not going to show up, so don't worry about that. Um, So go ahead and put in your response. On your phone, you'll see the question. How many models of EVs are currently in the United States? So just wondering what you think about the market for electric vehicles in the US. You've got a couple of options uh, there in the quiz. Go ahead and fill out. Oh, that went really fast. Well, you guys answered fast. Okay. (laughs) So we had most people answering that there are 12 models of electric vehicles. And in fact, there are 35 models available on the market today. And there's a couple of caveats there, but um, there's, I wanted to put this one up um, because it shows that you know we don't even know what all is out there, but there's a lot of options available. We know about the Tesla. We know about the Chevy Bolt. We know about the, the what's that other fancy one? The Audi, the Porsche. Yeah, we know about some of these, but there's actually quite a few. Um, So there's a lot of options if you're not super excited about the ones that you've heard of. And then I've got one more question. This is going to be a word cloud, so I'm asking you to put in one, two, or three words uh, about the biggest barrier you see to electric vehicle ownership. And it'll start popping up. The words will get bigger if more people put them in. Okay, so cost, this is good. Cost, range, and charging are really going to be the main ones. And that's pretty much the, the order that we thought that they would be in. Um, cost, I think people are thinking the initial cost of the vehicle. Um, and then we're going to talk a lot about charging today, so I'm glad to see that up there. Okay, thank you for indulging me. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm going to introduce our guests now, and I don't know. You can do whatever you want with that. Okay. Thank you again for participating in that. Um, we've got uh, some really great people here today. Um, Brian Hickey is the chief um, mm, operating officer for Chugach Electric. I was going to say executive officer for Chugach Electric Association. Uh, Julie Essie is the director of public rea- relations for the Matanuska. Uh, Electric Association, and she actually just got back from a rate-making uh, for Emerging Technologies Conference, so I'm hoping that she can give us some innovative ideas on this. And then Dimitri Schein is the Executive Director of the Alaska Electric Vehicle Association. This is a new association, so if you haven't heard of it yet, um, we he's now up and running, so he'll tell you about it. Each one of them are going to have about th- three minutes to talk about um, what they're interested in EVs is and what their organization is doing uh, about it and what they're working on in regards to electric vehicles. Thank
3: you. Yeah. Um, with, at Chuget, you, you know, I think we're excited about um, sustainability and about growing our load in a sustainable way. Um, I always call it rule number one for an electric utilities to grow your load. When you grow your load, the uh, uh, cost per kilowatt hour goes down. And so we think electric vehicles in the future are going to be a significant, uh, sustainable load, load component for us. What we've done so far, we um, um, took a look at the market and we purchased a Chevy Bolt. We put together a, a plan in uh, 2016, I think. We purchased a Chevy Bolt in 2017 and installed a charging station at Chugach to kind of understand do electric vehicles work in the wintertime. Back then we weren't sure will they get warm enough and how does all that work. So we've been driving our Chevy Bolt named Watson for, uh, for, the, last, uh, for the last couple of years. Um, and now we've sort of moved to the next phase of our, our EV initiative, which is gathering data on charging stations and how they're actually used. Uh, we put together a program. We were seeking a, a co-op private partnership with, uh, other, um, with entities who are interested in installing a charging station at a hotel or a mall we were seeking five uh, five uh, participants that we would share the cost of installation with and they would actually own the charging station and then we would get data from it to find out how how these charging stations are used, what's the actual, how often are they used and what's the load that they actually draw. We have, we installed our first one, I believe on the 17th of September at Aliesca at the hotel down at Aliesca right near the tram and we have four other, four or five other people who are interested and we're, working through the details of putting those charging stations in. Once we get that put together, um, our, our intention is to try to understand, you know, what's it really cost to put in a charging station and how can we work to co- cooperate both regionally with the other utilities and, as, and in uh, private partnerships with the cooperative in, in getting charging stations out because we believe, I think what you saw on the screen there, um, the two primary drivers for or for or the two primary challenges in, in uh, electric vehicle adoption are going to be range anxiety and cost, and so we're kind of working both of those uh, both of those uh, issues or challenges at the same time.
4: Thanks, Brian. Um, I'm Julie Estee, Director of External Affairs for Matanuska Electric Association. And that includes both public relations and also our member service department. And actually the work that we're doing around electric vehicles is is focused on my, um, my work with member service. We're very much seeing this as a member service. This is something that we've been hearing from our members that they're interested in. Um, We've seen it coming from the lower 48 for years, and so how can we get ahead of this technology? I'll be the first to say I'm not an expert on electric vehicles. There's probably far more experts here in this audience, and there's a few of them. We've got Josh Kraft, who's our grid modernization manager, who's been doing a lot of work. If I need to phone a friend, he'll be my first call. And then we also have Ed Jenkin in the back. He's our director of power delivery, and so we're all working as a team to look at what this means for MEA. Um, we've just spent the last few months surveying our members. It was an informal survey, not scientific, but we did it through Facebook um, with some incentives and we found out pretty much what you guys showed us here. I mean, our main, we have 52 of the 800 people who uh, responded to our survey actually have electric vehicles um, and their biggest, the people who don't have them, the biggest concern is range anxiety, cost, and winter performance. So those are the same things we heard here. Um, We're also just trying to figure out, as a member-owned cooperative, what MEA's role should be in this space and what our members want from us. Um, How can we solve some of the problems, but what really is the role of a member cooperative? And as Shana mentioned, I was down in a a rate making, which is a total nerd, nerd town for people like me, but looking at how we can innovate um, and what are some rate designs around innovation in, in the utilities? So we talked about battery storage, net metering, and all kinds of things. But one of the things that was very stark to me there is we're kind of a different animal up here. Um, we're cooperatives. A lot of the rate design principles that we, I heard at the conference were all investor-owned utilities. And there are different motivations, there's different levers that we have as a cooperative versus an investor-owned utility. Um, One of the things we don't have are profits that we can use to invest in in innovation. So what we have instead are very narrow margins that are owned by our members. And so we need to invest those very judiciously. The other thing that's different about a cooperative here in Alaska is that we're regulated. A lot of the cooperatives in the lower 48 are actually non-regulated because they have member voted boards. And so the fact that we have a regulatory commission of Alaska that is also helping us make sure that uh, the rates that we make are um, sound is another kind of different animal. So it's been interesting looking through our unique lens at the different options and realizing um, again the different the different levers that we have. And, um, that's not to be said as any sort of excuse, but I think it's a, it's an important part of the conversation as we look at solutions, um, the options that we have. And really for MEA, as we look at what our role should be, we're looking at it through a lens of beneficial electrification. And, and a lot of you have probably heard that term. We're not out there trying to grow load and, and hawk like tanning beds and hot tubs. I mean, that's really not our goal as an electric utility. Our goal is... Um, with the beneficial electrification, how we can offset energy costs used from non-electrical use towards electrical use that could be more efficient for our members.
5: Uh, many of our members drove to Homer recently. I can drive to Fairbanks, and uh, the issue is that not that can we make it to Fairbanks is just how painful and how much camping do you want to do while driving to Fairbanks? Something that normally in Lower 48 or in Canada takes uh, just You know half an hour charge in Alaska would take an eight hour charge because there is no uh, charging infrastructure developed and we are uh, we want to partner with uh, the utilities in a way that just to communicate what's needed and we don't need any grand uh, things just a little bit of help to create the correct rate uh, to allow for level three charging in the state of Alaska and once we have the correct tariffs that reflect the reality of this new technology, and once they reflect the reality of how the technology is used, uh, we can see private businesses step in like Electrify America, Tesla, uh, other business owners can buy and install uh, fast chargers. Uh, So yeah, uh, that is the basic idea of of our organization, And, um, and we don't we don't just focus on Anchorage, or uh, Matsu, or you know Homer. Our idea is that we represent all EV drivers across the state of Alaska. We care about someone in Fairbanks being able to get in their car and efficiently, uh, effectively, safely drive from Fairbanks to Homer in one day. Right now, it would take five days probably, but, <laughs> but we wanted to be one day, like a gasoline vehicle, because that's what an EV is designed to do. Uh, Current EVs have over 300 miles of range. It's very comparable to a gasoline vehicle. So if we simply install the correct chargers, which the state of Alaska has the money now, from the Volkswagen settlement. So the money is there. We just need to correct some of these rates uh, and make them reflect the current reality, and we can have um, uh, amazing new technology that can grow everybody's load. <laughs> and everyone will be happy, <laughs> beneficially. <laughs> so that's uh, all I have, thanks.
2: Okay, thank you everyone. Um, so we're gonna do just some some conversation up here and then we'll open it up to questions in the crowd. Um, and I wanted to kind of, Dimitri, you started talking about rates and tariffs, and I wanna back up just a little bit. We've got a crowd who, um, A lot of them want to own EVs but don't yet own them. And so some of these first questions are going to be probably more towards you. Um, I'd like it if you'd talk just a little bit about what it's like to drive an electric vehicle. Talk about handling and maintenance and how you charge. If you could kind of start there, I think people would want to get an idea of that.
5: Okay, so I charge like a simple um, uh, 220 plug, like for a dryer, for example, it's something like that and I plug my cord into my plug and it charges overnight um, it usually from if you want to go from zero to full charge it will take it will take you overnight probably eight hours to charge all the way up uh, what's nice about an uh, electric vehicle is is that there is no exhaust like when my car is in the garage I can just get my app and warm up my seats and uh, get the temperature in there just right and um, then the, I load up all the kids and I drive them to school just like any other car. Um, that's pretty much it. The only difference is that you don't have to go to the gas station. Um, uh, so around town, if you're not trying, if there is no challenge of, for example, I'll I'll tell you an example of what it's like to drive to Homer. <laughs> I drove to Homer last week. And I got up 2 in the morning and I drove to a wonderful place there. It's called Brewit 602. I got there about 5 in the morning and my battery was to 30% and there's some level 2 chargers, which are not fast chargers. Uh, And because of the lack of fast chargers, I crawled into my car and I slept in my car for five hours. Uh, And then I crawled out of my car and went and had some waffles. Uh, At this wonderful coffee shop and then I proceeded to drive to Homer. I got to to Homer and um, There was an event to open up a level two charger. Our organization was involved in installing and um, After a couple hours of mingling and giving uh, test rides to everybody in the car uh, I headed back to uh, Soldatna and I got to Soldatna and I plugged in it to the charger again and I crawled back in the car and went to sleep for six hours. And then I got up at eleven and I drove home. Um, and I got home at two in the morning. So it was a twenty four hour trip, which, you know, having a correct fast level three charger would make that would cut that trip down to like by eleven hours. I could I could be home eleven hours earlier. I would not and like it's a wonderful location, but there are some, like at nighttime, some kids pulled up and I think they were like de- doing some kind of deals. And I got very nervous. I was like, is this how my life is going to end? <laughs> and my <laughs> electric vehicle in the back of it in fear. So, this is why it's very important that we get level three charging in Alaska so people can enjoy their electric vehicles and uh, just drive them like normal cars.
2: What would that trip have looked like if there were level three chargers on the highway?
5: Yeah, I would have left home. Say not at two in the morning. I would have left home because I had to be in Homer by uh, one. I would have left home, you know, at uh, eleven or so, maybe ten in the morning. I would have got to Soldatna around what uh, one or whatever. I would have charged for half an hour, and I would have proceeded to Soldatna. I would have charged on the way back for half an hour, and I would have, been, I would have would have been home by six in the evening, you know. So yeah, that's why charging is important.
2: And so I'm wondering if, and uh, Brian and Julie, I'll ask you to jump in here too. Um, if you could talk about what it's like to drive an electric vehicle, how it handles, especially in the winter. I think a lot of people are wondering about that. There's a, a still a lack of models with all-wheel drive for all electric vehicles. Um, and then uh, uh, what was the other thing I was going to ask? Um, maintenance, if you've seen, you have an electric vehicle, Watson, uh, and then Dimitri, what you've seen for maintenance, um, we know that there's less parts, and we've heard that there's less maintenance, so I'd love to hear from you.
3: Yeah, I've driven Watson around. Uh, it's It handles great. I'm amazed at how big this Chevy Bolt is. It doesn't look that big from the outside. I'm a pretty big guy, but it's comfortable. Uh, the heater's great. It's instantaneous. Turn the heat on and the car's warm. You don't have to wait for it to warm up. And it handles great. It, it accelerates uh, faster than any vehicle I've ever owned, but I'm not a real fast vehicle kind of guy. It's, so uh, I, I think it's great. It handles well on the snow. I don't believe, and, and I should have looked before I came down, how many miles we've got on it now. I, any Any employee in the company can check it out and drive it around, so I'm not Sure, how many miles we have on it, but I don't believe we've done any uh, routine maintenance on it at this point. So that was our experience with it.
2: Did you want to add anything?
5: I see watts on it, coots sometimes. No, <laughs> <I'm> just joking. <laughs> uh, what, uh, no, I think like the thing is like uh, it handles just like any other car. If you wreck your vehicle. It is probably a little bit more problematic to get replacement parts because there are lots of parts, and they're not as readily available. So it will—I think it would be probably like similar to wrecking like in, uh like a premium uh, vehicle here in town where they have to order parts. So that's one downside.
6: Yeah.
2: And I'll answer for our Chevy Bolt. Um, we've only got like maybe four thousand, less than four thousand miles on it. I think. Um, it's been handling really well. The batteries are low, so it rides low and it's it, the Chevy bolt is very smooth um, even in the winter and we've had zero maintenance on it. Uh, we've had to take it in to get windshield wiper fluid. So.
4: Um, and Just to add, I mean MEA does have a hybrid that we bought in like 2011 or 2012 and so um, it's, the she- it's the Chevy Bolt. and I will say I think um, what I will say about our Volt is that I think that the technology has come a long way. And so stories you may have heard about electric vehicles or hybrids back in the 2012 era, um, my understanding is things are, are moving along better. And I think that is some of the misperceptions that people have about electric vehicles, are stories from some of the earlier models. Um, our battery is degraded significantly, but I've heard that they have solved that issue. And so don't base your perceptions on, you know, 2011, 2012, that's a long time ago now, even though it seems like just yesterday. Um, I think that is that is one of the things that I would pass along.
2: And I'm going to open this up. Um, I'll, I'll prime it by saying that most electric vehicles are getting over 100 miles per charge now. Um, the Chevy Bolt is 238 miles per charge. The Tesla Model S, I think, is like 330, around there. Um, Three what? Oh, 370, wow. <laughs> so all everybody buy Teslas. Um, so that being said, and I will say that you definitely lose range on cold days. You're using more of your battery to go towards heat, of course. Um, so that being said, uh, what are your thoughts on how many level three fast chargers we would need on the rail belt from Fairbanks to Homer?
3: Um, you know, I, th- I think the... You want to put them in probably every 30, 60, 70 miles. Um, and I think we did a count on that, and it's in the 30 to 40 range, covers Anchorage to Fairbanks, Fairbanks to Homer, uh, Anchorage to Glenallen, Allen to Valdez, Valdez to, to, to Fairbanks, or I mean uh, Allen to Fairbanks. So that's kind of the, I think, the general range you're at.
4: Well, I know, I mean, I heard Dimitri talk at the Clean Power Happy Hour. He said even if every utility put in one, it would be significantly, it would be a significant difference. And I think, you know, you can't assume that everybody starts at full charge at the same place. And so I think you do want some redundancy. I think also something to think about is at the outer edge of the service territories, the reliability, the the grid isn't as redundant. And so we do need to consider that, for instance, if you want to put one at the far edge of MEA service territory going towards Fairbanks, which is the Kasugi Ken Campground up on the Denali State Park, um, it's on a long radial line that's fed you know, back towards Talkeetna with lots of trees in between. And so um, you do want some redundancy in that charging system to make sure that when you pull up at an empty charge or low charge and you need to get to Cantwell at the next station that there's that there's some redundancy there, and so I think that is something that we want to consider as we're placing things around. Dimitri?
5: Yeah, um, I think it's the nice thing about Alaska is they're a weird big state, but you know our population is, especially all the EVs, all the people who would be driving the EV are kind of would have Fairbanks, kind of Anchorage, uh, Soldatna, Homer, so you can solve this lack of uh, charging situation pretty rapidly and at at very low cost. And again, there is already state funding available for these chargers. And again, level three chargers are more expensive, so they're like $50,000 a piece plus some additional um, transformers and things that would need to go in. But literally, if you put a fast charger at Healy, a fast charger in Willow, a fast charger in Anchorage, fast charger in Soldotna, you have just covered like 99% of EVs. And so that is, that is the good news, that we can solve this pretty rapidly with very little money and using probably some private funds as well. Uh, and for redundancy, you can have level two charging in between, which is just a basic 220 outlet would do. Uh, so it's not a very expensive problem to solve, it's not. Uh, a very um, hard problem to solve, because all of this has been invented. It's all being used effectively. And um, what is what prevents some of this happening are some fixed costs, which we will get into, I suppose, the demand charges and so forth, or what it will take to operate uh, a level three charger on a consistent basis.
2: Well, let's just jump into that. We've uh, heard that you know, level threes are really the crux of kind of opening up the road system. Um, but we refer to demand charges as one of the barriers, and um, I don't want to assume that everybody knows what a demand charge is, that would be crazy. Um, so can you talk about, and maybe Julie, Brian, this would be good for you to talk about how that works and what the barrier is there, why demand charges are an issue when it comes to fast chargers.
3: So um, so on, on, the, on the Chugach system, Uh, Fast chargers are sort of in that 200 to 300 kW range, kilowatt uh, peak demand range, which puts it into what we would call our large general service commercial class. Um, That particular class of customer for Chugach and I think for the other utilities um, has a demand charge. and, And the idea behind a demand charge is that we build out the electric system to serve that load for its peak demand but that peak demand only cur- occurs relatively infrequently during the year. And so the cost for constructing that lar- that facility that meets maybe your peak that occurs an hour or two a year has to be recovered somehow. And we recover that through a, a, a charge that's associated with your demand as opposed to the actual energy you use. Um, and demand. So that's what a demand charge is. Um, on the Chugach system, uh, a, a large general service Demand charge is about $20, $22 per kW. So if you used uh, 2kW, which is your peak for that month, then you would pay the $44 charge, a demand charge for that. Um, I know uh, Commissioner Scott's here, and I think there's been some talk of creating some sort of a workshop where the Road Belt group could come together and talk about ways that we could perhaps... uh, um, adjust that for electric vehicle charging stations and make an exception for that. Uh, I don't think it's a big um, financial issue for the utilities, but what it is is an issue related to the fact that under Alaska statutes, electric rates have to be just and reasonable. And so we can't give a, it's difficult to give a, a, a make an exception for a specific member of a customer class without making it for all the members in that customer class. And that's an issue that we would have to work through with the Commission. And uh, so I think that's where we're at on demand charges.
4: Yeah, for I mean, for MEA, I think the other thing to understand about demand charges is you need, I mean, sorry, about the level three chargers, is that you need three-phase power, um, which is more of the backbone of the system rather than the, kind of the long, um, you know, the two lines versus three lines that you may see out there. So it takes a specific kind of, of uh, infrastructure. So I think that's something to understand. Um, with the demand charges and talking to folks down in the lower 48, about how they are handling it. There, are, there are places where they do demand forgiveness or demand holidays, and so I think there are some. There's some flexibility um, in the MEA service territory. We are not impacted. We're primarily residential load. We're not impacted as greatly by the large commercial um, uh, users, and so our demand charges are actually lower. Our demand charge is more around eight dollars, and so um, for us, a demand. A member may, like say, say three bears wanted to put char- level three charging stations through their MEA service territory. It would cost them a couple hundred dollars a month, and that might be worth it because they may say, "Hey, if while you're charging, you're going to come in and buy some chips and some who knows what." Three bears has a lot of stuff, and um, so that it'd be worth it for them. But uh, and I think, but throughout the other utilities, those demand charges are necessarily different, and so um, I think. the the option to talk to the RCA about options. There's other places in the lower 48 that are doing demand charges focused on beneficial electrification. So um, that's where they um, stipulate that holiday is if you are providing a service to your members that allows them to reduce their entire energy charge, EVs, battery storage, heat pumps is another one, then those demand charges um, get instigated. And so those these are all really interesting conversations that I think we are all ready to have to to try to solve this issue.
5: Um, so I guess I'll just explain how this demand charge issue affects a fast charger. Um, so a lower lower end level three fast charger for an EV is 50 kilowatts. That's the lower end. That's like five years ago model Uh, that's being replaced. But if we were to, for example, put this in Anchorage, in Chugach territory, and that charger comes on for 15 minutes, you take 50 kilowatts, and it comes on only for 15 minutes in a month, just 15 minutes in a month. You multiply 50 times 20 or 21 or something like that, and it's over $1,000 for that charger being on for 15 minutes. So that's where we start talking about well, what's reasonable? What's really happening here? Is this 15 minutes really fair? Is it really is it really impacting Chugach? or, sorry to pick on Chugach, Homer Electric that much? <laughs> uh, you know. Um, so that's where we get into, start talking about these demand charges. MAA uh, is is better. Uh, I MEA is like under just around $10 or something, nine something. So 50 kilowatts comes on, it's about $400 for 15 minutes. So that's where it becomes, it's still, it's still an issue, like $400 for three bears in Healy, like they're gonna say we're gonna pay $400 a month for a customer to charge one time. Like that's how many EVs we get through Healy, maybe one, two, three, and we're going to pay $400. There's no way we're going to recoup this $400, and that's what prevents uh, three bears from putting in in a charger. Uh, Which, so our our proposal would be pretty simple. Like, for example, for like, MAA has no demand charges on their single-phase service. So I can hook up five level two chargers, 10 kilowatts each, and draw 50 kilowatts. No problem. So, why is it a problem to hook it up to a three phase and draw the same 50 kilowatts? So, like, it would be great if MEA would see it, see it our way, the EV drivers and the, you know, people who want to commute using their EV vehicles, and just say, you know, how about we create a tariff or a rate that says, you know, for 50 kW, limited to 1,000 kilowatt hours. Uh, that's about, 20, that's about 20 hours of EV charging with no demand charge. It's very similar to a single-phase service. Um, it seems reasonable. It's limited. And once you go over that 1,000 kilowatt hours, uh, the commercial rates kick in. And the same analysis could be done for Chugach Electric and Golden Valley, for example. they're they're up to 50 kW already. So uh, in theory it would actually be okay to put a charger, lower end charger in Healy with no demand charges. So um, that's just some
3: ideas. I I would just, I I would echo what Julie said. I think these are discussions that we're, Chuyech is ready to have, MEA is ready to have. And I think the commission has to be in the room um, in that discussion because those rates are going to have to be approved by the commission. And um, so I, I, I know that Mr. Scott's in the back, and I'm sure he's taking notes. So, uh, um, anyway, I think we're ready to have those discussions.
5: There's not like a single uh, level two charger, anything, like from Anchorage to Talkeetna, And I have made it my mission to call every single business along the roadway <laughs> and offer them a free charger with installation. There's not a single business that has taken me up on that offer. So, um, and when you, and demand charges come up, and uh, the cost of electricity comes up, even crazy things like people say, well, if somebody electrocutes themselves, come up. So, there is a lot of education and a lot of work that needs to be done before we have competition. like. You can see competition happening in Anchorage, but uh, just along the way to Fairbanks, it's going to be problematic.
4: And I know Tesla was up here just this week talking about, um, they are very motivated to help us get our charging stations up and going and and even offering um, free charging stations. I mean, as far as the the equipment, um, they only serve Teslas, so that's you know that's a limitation but you know i think there's it's starting and that's the exciting thing that we see is it's starting and hearing in the lower 48 people talk about there's a whole culture around charging there's like dog parks where you go exercise your dog and charge up and you know the bookstores over here and the you know i mean it's it's a pretty it's happening down in the lower 48 of course most things happen a little faster there with the with the population but we're definitely ready to have those conversations as shana mentioned she's been bringing together a group of utilities and other stakeholders around how do we start moving down this path there's funding available through a VW settlement fund that AEA will so hopefully soon release that we can start utilizing so we are actively trying to help our members solve this problem
3: you know i think i think if you look at it if you kind of break the challenge down into a couple parts you have the cost associated with Resolving the range anxiety, there's things that utilities can can do directly, uh, to the to the point of working on our tariffs. Um, There's a tariff related to Chugach has a tariff that uh, tariff number seven that says that um, you know we can't sell people people cannot sell electricity that they buy from us, and I believe that's because there's an Alaska statute that requires that. There's some changes that have to be made there, or you can go to a different way of solving that problem where. Maybe you have a flat rate for up to so many kilowatt hours of charging and then another flat rate if you use more and a flat rate above that, kind of like you do with your data plan for, for GCI. But um, there are things that we can do directly, but there's also a lot that we can do working with other, utility, other utilities and stakeholders collaboratively. And I think Julie's uh, point, you know, the road belt group is, I think, going to try to develop a, a regional plan to install these chargers, and hopefully, we can use some of that VW settlement money to do that. And so, I think there's educating our members or things that we can work collaboratively with other stakeholders and utilities to get some of that education out there because cooperatives are um, one of the seven cooperative principles is member education. So, I think there's stuff that we can do along there.
2: Yeah, and I'm going to reiterate what one of you cooperatives said in the beginning, which is that cooperatives can't develop a rate that is special. They can't give somebody a discount without offering it to everybody. And so their concern is um, if they uh, eliminate or reduce those demand charges, they need to make sure that other people are not paying the difference. And um, I think that's great. Um, And then the other piece of this is that electric utilities will also, if you put in fast chargers, People are going to still do 90-plus percent of their charging at home. And so the utilities, you're going to be able to sell more kilowatt hours, which is also good. So I think there's hopefully a sweet spot that we can find there that benefits everyone. Um, I wanted to move on because we only have a few more minutes uh, before we run to Q&A. And we had a couple questions about the utilities role in not just these demand rates, but what about um, any other incentives? Or you can go back to rates, of course, if you want. but I know Julie's been thinking about this, and Dimitri had a couple of questions about this. There's a lot of different structures in the Lower 48 um, to help members meet their desire to have electric vehicles and and drive along the grid. So I'm hoping you could just chat a little bit about that and what you see
4: your role is. Well, I think you know that is one of the questions we're trying to ask, as as Shana said, as we look at. Um, we have margins that belong to our members, and how those are able to be spent. um, One rate, one group can't be subsidizing another group, and so we need to be uh, very judicious and creative in how we make this happen, so that anything that we do shows benefit to the rest of our members. And I know one thing that's been brought up to me a lot is time of use rates, you know. Can we do time of use rates? Why isn't that happening here? Um, and I think that's definitely something we should look at again. MEA just did a rate case a few years ago. And because of the new generation suite on the rail belt, because we are sharing power more amongst our, ourselves, there's very little change in, um, we talk in heat rates, but in the cost of producing power um, during different times of day at this point. And that doesn't mean that there, that there may not be now. That doesn't mean that there aren't other benefits other than just heat rate. Um, as far as, you know, reducing peaks around maintenance, around new generation, the next, you know, build out of new generation around gas aggregation. So I, there's some things that definitely need to be worked at. But as I was listening to the folks at the utility conference this week, um, one thing that I mer- my eyes were opened at is that most of the time with time of use rates, yes, the off-peak rate is lower, but the on-peak rate is higher. And so that's doing more of a cost-based rate. So it's not just that you get a discount if you charge at night. It's that if you use power during the peak hours, you're also paying more. Like there was the Colorado utility, um, was it was 3.5 to 1. Most of them are 2 to 3.5. So their off-peak rate was $0.08, cents, but they were paying $0.28 cents during on-peak. And to me, $0.28 cents in Colorado just seemed shocking. But... So it's, an, it's a good conversation to have, but I think we need to have that conversation with our eyes wide open. It means that we're shifting more towards rates that are very uh, much more focused on what the costs are to make that power during that time. Right now it's more of an average. We take our total revenue requirement to make the power divided by the kilowatt hours that we expect to have, and that's the rate that we propose to the RCM. I mean, that's very oversimplified. but. Um, a, a time of use rate would would adjust that, and that comes with benefits, but it also comes with trade offs and I think as we have that conversation, that's just something to keep in mind um It's not this kind of golden egg that that is right for the for the taking it, it's going to take some conversation and and some some real understanding of what that means.
5: yeah, I think what I'd just like to add is that you know um when the street light was invented, the electric, company, electric utilities took notice. And I was just looking at the rates. There's like 10 tariffs for a street light. There's like a street light with a, with a wooden pole, street light with a metal pole, straight like So there's like 10 different tariffs for a street light. So electric vehicles are a big deal. And what's happening now, they're again pushed into uh, categories that they're not. You know, they're not a large commercial service. Uh, the overall load on the system is very small. It's uh, intermittent, uh, and if we if we really analyze what it is, I'm sure we can come up with a rate that allows for us to have level three charging, fast charging, on the system uh, at rates that don't uh, prevent installation of uh, f- uh, charging infrastructure in the state
4: of Alaska. And, and from MEA's perspective, I mean, Dimitri has excellent points. Right now we're working with our current structure because that's what we have. Um, and that's why we need to start having these conversations and doing the analysis. And making decisions with eyes wide open about all the um, all the costs and benefits of what we're doing. But he makes excellent points because that's what we're doing. We're force fitting into what we currently have. So. We're looking forward to extending and expanding that conversation.
2: So I've been directed to move to questions from the audience, which I'm really excited about. And um, I don't know if, uh, Greg, you want to help with the microphones. If you have a question, just raise your hand. Um, you got it?
7: <laughs> uh My question is regard to the three large businesses, the city and the two utilities. Uh, Could you please state the number of vehicles that you use and the percentage of vehicles that will have a plug-in capability for each of the five years between 2020 and 2040? Uh, And uh, with regards to the city of Anchorage, They've been uh, since the the load will be shifting from vehicle pollution to electrical production, uh, electricity production, or is uh, the city going to continue its vehement opposition to wind power when uh, Chugach takes over supply of the uh, the the power supply? Or will it uh, support a purchase of more power, uh, wind power from Siri? And with regards to the EV, dude, <laughs> uh, how about uh, do, do those offers of free installations include metering so that the commercial uh, operation can charge the EV user for the power they consume?
2: So that was a lot. I'll start, um, and I'll try to be quick here. I'm going to stick to EVs as much as I can. Uh, We are looking at our fleets. We drive a lot of vehicles. Um, What I'm doing right now in our office, we're trying to do an assessment of what vehicles we have in the municipality so we can start to identify what ones it makes sense to switch over to electric. Um, Where will we save money and uh, reduce emissions? Uh, I'm going to Push it to uh, Brian on the emissions. These have no tailpipe emissions, but they do use ele- more electricity than you would otherwise use. So we need to account for that as well. And um, I believe Sean Scaling, uh, I believe he said 60% reduction um, in the electricity emissions versus uh, combustible engines, our traditional cars. Um, so we're looking at a pretty big reduction. Is that correct?
3: Um yeah I, w- I would say that's correct. you know we primarily generate electricity with natural natural gas fired combustion turbines and they i'm sorry we we pr- currently we generate most of our electricity, about eighty percent of it with natural gas fired combustion turbines, and they are considerably more efficient than internal combustion engines, and that number is somewhere between forty and sixty percent that you pick up, so you do reduce emissions significantly um we also operate those in combined cycles, so we use the waste heat out of the out of the stacks of those gas turbines to fire steam turbines, so we get more electricity out of them. So they're, um, and then we have hydroelectric, which obviously has zero emissions. So uh, we have, um, and the wind power. So th- it is a much more efficient way to run the system. Um, and I, you know, there were a lot of questions in that. Oh, the fleet. Let me go. So we are looking at electric vehicles. You know, there there aren't a lot of uh, a, a lot of. Um, SUV type electric vehicles, larger than SUVs. I'm sorry, I don't. We. I'm talking. Yeah, I'm. I'm I'm saying there are some of those in our fleet, but a lot of our fleet are large, larger, heavy, more heavy, heavy equipment, which isn't in that realm right now. However, going back to what's happening right today at Chugach, we we put our fleet acquisition on hold until the acquisition of municipal light and power is complete, so that we can kind of look at the two two fleets and understand what they have and what we have and what we need to actually replace. But in that 2020, 2021 budget, we will be looking at, a, at, at the ability to replace some of those smaller vehicles that we use with electric, uh, electric vehicles.
4: And at MEA, we only have two or three that are really just kind of a pool of transit vehicles that we can use. Most of what we use are trucks. And I definitely have, especially these two guys, eyeing the rumored F-150, and the rumored Tesla pickup truck that are supposed to, that's supposed to be announced towards the end of the year. Um, so we'd love to understand what those are and their capabilities. I mean, since we are a critical infrastructure, we need to have the vehicles that are able to, to go where we need them to go. And But we're really excited about what we're hearing, especially about the F-150s. So more to come on that. But, and currently, we know nothing about, like, the large bucket trucks. Um, which is really what does a lot of our mileage between pickup trucks and the bucket trucks. So um, more to come as the technology approved, improves. And I think he had a question for you.
5: Yeah. I was just going to add, how cool would it be if MAA had like a big electric monster truck, and Chugach had Watson and Sparkles, but MAA is like cruising around. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. About the chargers. So what we do is we get your free charger. It's a level two charger. We pay for the installation. We fundraise and we pay the installation. So typically, you're looking at a three to five thousand dollar property improvement. Now, if you're in Wasilla or in Talkeetna, any place, you can maybe somebody will come and charge for an hour passing through town. So you're looking at maybe a ten dollars of electricity. So for you to install like a billing system and credit card reader and so forth, and like you know, it's going to cost you like. $400 in service fees just to operate the darn thing. So there's, it's no, meter. there's no meter. People come in, uh, plug in. If you want, put up a sign that says, you like my charger, give me a tip, and have a tip jar. And that will be like far more money than anyone will ever use out of that thing. Because no one, generally, no one's going to use a Level 2 charger unless they absolutely have to. No one is going to drive to Wasilla, park there for eight hours sleep in the car just to get $5 of electricity, you know? It's not something that happens. So that's why we, we skip the whole billing metering part. You know.
6: Thank you, my name is Tom Harris. I'm uh, CEO of a village corporation in the Valley. We placed a micro-combined heat and power system in our building. And as a result, we've been able to reduce our electrical costs for the building by about 90%. And to give you an example, that took a utility bill in February from $4,500 a month to $200 a month. We're now looking to put in uh, chargers for our members, but uh, we're looking for guidance on how to do that. And if we did do that, would would we be running in violation of utilities if we were to sell that uh, utility or that charge to our our guests. So that's a question for the panel. How does a private enterprise where we have our own generation system and for discussion purposes, our cost of gas for the year went up $500. Our
3: savings were in the $36,000 range. Um, I, b- I believe and so i'm not a lawyer so and i'm not a regulatory person so i i uh but I know that under forty two oh five three eighty one the definition of a public utility is an entity that owns plant and uses it to distribute electric energy and I believe that there may be you would want to look into whether you would be regulated as a public utility in doing that uh, i'd want to know that answer if I were you um i know that on the Chugach system, we have a tariff that prohibits you buying electricity from us and selling it to someone else if your meter was installed after February 1st, 1973. What's important about that date, I don't know. But um, I I believe that there is a statute that prohibits in 4205 that prohibits the sale of, of resale of electric energy by non-utilities. that's something that you'd want to research if you were going to do that. I, I can't tell you the answer to that, but that's a question that I would want to get an answer to. Well, I think you could charge a person a flat fee to park in a place and plug in. You can't sell them kilowatt hours of electricity. You could charge them 50 bucks to park there for an hour, but I think you couldn't sell them, meter them and sell them electricity, but I, I believe that's the case.
5: Yeah, so the answer is just charge them for parking. Charge for parking um, per hour or whatever. So figure out what it's costing you in electricity per hour and then charge them for parking per hour. Call it an awesome EV spot and just charge for that. Charge for parking per hour.
6: (laughs) Well, (coughs) Uh, thank you so much. And uh, at our house, the meter goes both ways. We've got solar panels. And that was kind of the reason we did that was because we're going to get the electric car. We've now had the LEAF for a year. And uh, so I just wanted to mention that uh, for three months, our our electric bill was $15 a month. And so that's driving for free. And uh, the other thing that, that I really thought uh, just lately, you know, thinking about uh, uh, possible uh, volcano, I don't drag in any air to burn.
1: Can I add a question to that? About can you guys, the utilities, talk about vehicle to grid? Um stuff. Have you guys thought about that? Have you looked into that and, and what's the possibility of that coming online? Oh, I'll I'll just say I wouldn't want if I
5: have a like a electric vehicle, I wouldn't want my battery degraded with back and forth charging. I don't think it's it's wise. Other people might have other opinions, but generally people buy an electric vehicle for purposes of uh driving and uh, I think there's other solutions like power walls, and et cetera, that could be used just as effectively or better, but I will let the utility folks explain.
4: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, opportunities to look at. I think what I heard down from other folks in the lower 48 was that they're really looking at that more for batteries, battery walls, batteries. Um, and having access to those instead of their personal vehicles. But I think, you know, the technology is just on the horizon, and so there's there's a lot of options. But what I have heard is very similar to yours. A lot of the people that are driving EVs at M, in MEA service territory are also net metering members, and so they're using some of that excess solar or wind, primarily solar in our service territory, to um, to, to also fill their vehicle up. So it's definitely a common thing, and I think part of that is just those folks are naturally early adopters. Those folks are naturally um, looking at innovation and how, um, and, and very active in their electric bill. I mean, a lot of folks are also some of our lowest users because they're very um, active in how they manage their bill. But it's definitely common.
3: Um, I, I think from a system perspective, once electric vehicles are adopted as the as a, as the majority of vehicles out there, so there's a lot of batteries out there. There, there, there's a place for a, some sort of a rate, much like an interruptible rate that you might have with a large industrial customer where you might use that, if you had the two-way communications to each of those locations, you might be able to use that battery capacity and provide those people who choose to let you use that battery capacity. At certain times, uh, you could actually create some sort of a system battery out of it, but I think that's way down the road. We've gotta get enough batteries out there to actually make that a viable thing, and then you have to have the, the communications, the two-way, communic- high-speed two-way communications to make that functional. But I think there's probably a future there.
2: I'd add that I'm pretty excited about this. I think it's really cool. Why not use the battery when you're not driving to charge or put it into your building or whatever you're doing? And so um, I'm curious about a potential pilot project to park a car and be able to predict when your facility is going to hit its peak load and push in energy at that point to shave your peak um, and reduce your energy charges. I don't know if it's gonna happen or be possible, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about it.
1: <laughs> Hello, um, so you talk about the garbage truck scenario. Um, in seventeen eighteen we piloted a bus in Anchorage Um, And I thought that the pilot was to prove that buses can work inside the city, but we since handed it back over due to uh, being able to recharge it. Uh, I'm just curious as to if we move down that route, obviously the city needs to come up with a way to continue moving these vehicles, especially the garbage trucks. What is the plan, or if there is one?
2: Great question. Uh, The pilot bus project, it was a pilot, so it was meant to only be four months during the winter. And um, I think we kind of got what we expected. It ran, it operated less than a diesel vehicle because it had to come back and be charged in the winter. And the problem there is that we have buses that run 18 hours a day, and so you can't have a part of your fleet running for 8 to 12 hours a day. That's a problem for us if we're not charging among the route. Uh, we're looking at charging among the route, but that gets very expensive. Um, for the garbage truck, that's much easier, actually. Our routes are much smaller. Everybody that we talk to, the route is not the limiting factor. They are all like, oh, your your territory is small. We can do this. And our garbage truck drivers even come back for an hour for lunch and can charge up. But um, that's not the limiting factor. It's just getting a truck. Everybody wants them. There's not many out there yet. They want to sell us 10 at a time. We're not going to do that. So, um, yeah, it's. The, the bus pilot was good to inform us on this, but if anything, it encouraged us, even if we're not ready to go for buses.
4: Yeah, hi,
7: uh, this is for Julie and Brian. Um, are MEA and CEA looking at developing any on-bill financing options for homeowners who want to make these investments in their house?
4: Well, the on-bill financing is now an option through, um, and I can't remember which piece of legislation did that. The number, you might know it, it Come, okay, come on, you legislative nerd. You know the number. No, but that was just passed a few um, a few years ago, making it an option. But I, and it's for energy efficiency and renewable. I'm not sure how it translates to EVs, um, but it's definitely something worth worth looking at. It just became available, so um, yeah, it's definitely something to look at.
3: Um, I I think at Chugach we've considered that, but, you know, we really don't want to be in competition with our credit unions and banks. Um, If there were a need out there and the membership desired that to happen, obviously we'd we'd take a hard look at it. But uh, I think we we looked at it and thought, well, you know, we've got eight credit unions and they're all co-ops and we don't want to go out and take their, their business away. And then there's a bunch of banks as well. So I, I think that's kind of where we came down on that, but it isn't something that couldn't be revisited.
2: It'd be neat if you could do like a statewide or a rail belt one where you're still working with private banks, but the funding is rolling through you and the risk is reduced because their energy bill goes down so they save money and also people pay their energy bills.
4: To add to that, we did do on-bill financing years and years ago for like, electric appliances or something you know, back in the 80s. And, and at that time, it was an issue for some of our members um, or some of our you know, lending members that we were in competition. Um, we found at that time that we could not do the process of loaning as efficiently, and so it was actually costing a little bit more. And the folks that were coming to us that were the ones that could not um, get loans through other places, and so they tended to be higher risk, and so it ended up costing our membership more. Um, that was an experience back in the 80s. I'm sure there's there's ways to manage that differently now, but um, they're, they're all things to talk about in the equation. Hi, I'm Veri DeSuvro with ACPERG. I'm hoping you or maybe someone from AEA in the audience could talk about when the funding from the VW sed- settlement will be dispersed um, to fund these projects. Thank you.
2: I don't know if we have anyone from AEA, but I can answer it. Um, so there is a Alaska Energy Authority, our state's energy authority, got $8.125 million in the Volkswagen Settlement Fund. A uh, bit of background, I forgot to talk about this. I had a slide on it and I didn't talk about it. Um, Volkswagen cheated on their emissions testing and so as a result of the settlement, each state got money for it. Alaska Energy Authority divvied it up and basically our road system is um, going to get $950,000 in grant money for charging infrastructure. And that's why we're getting together and saying, "Well, we need a, a plan." You're asking about when that's coming out. I don't. I don't know. Um.
5: <laughs> so yeah. So they're supposed to like someone or like everyone I talk to is working on a plan for this, and everyone and somehow all these plans get wrapped into that one magical, perfect plan. And once we have that perfect plan, some of the money gets dispersed. I don't know how it's gonna go. So the issue with that is that we can make this perfect plan. Like, oh, everyone says, well, you know, it'd be great to have a supercharger in Cooper Landing, but like when you start actually asking people, there is no one in Cooper Landing who wants to put a charger there. So, um, So the issue is that it'd be ideal if this money would start coming out for available projects, but um, it's not coming out, and no one knows when.
4: And we did just talk to a representative from Alaska Energy Authority yesterday and um, really urged them to come up with a plan. It's definitely something that's a priority for us. We've been talking a lot about it. Um, I think, you know, there was a changeover with some leadership with the administration, and I think that's probably caused a few delays as well. Um, But we hope with our urging that it'll happen sooner rather than later. And maybe with your urging, if you'd like to urge Alaska Energy Authority.
2: They're working on it. I think they keep trying to find the best plan. <laughs> yep.
6: Yeah, Shana, on those um, new electric police vehicles here. So did the city build
4: a bunch of charging stations in order to keep those cars going? Did the city build some charging stations to keep those new police cars going? The police cars
2: are hybrid, so they still run on gasoline, um, but they do have an electric motor, and so they save energy. Uh, you don't have to plug that one in. The Our electric vehicle, Sparkles, you do have to plug in, and we're just using um, a 220, and we just plug it in at the lot. So those aren't pl- aren't public charging stations.
0: Um, did you see a difference when you did the bus uh, testing uh, with the, arc, the cold weather? Did that does that have effect on? how long the charges hold on the cars or anything like that?
2: The cold weather did affect uh, the bus and how long it would operate. They kept bringing it back at about 20%, and it ran anywhere, I want to say from, this was a year and a half ago, I want to say eight hours to, uh, gosh, I think like 15. I can't remember if it ran a full 18. I should know that. Um, But the cold weather was the biggest impactor. It had to heat the cabin off the battery.
4: All right, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Colleen Fisk, the Education Director at REAP, and I find this really fascinating. Of course, I want my own electric vehicle, obviously. To drive. I just drove down to Homer and back for an education outreach, and I would love if I could do that in an electric vehicle <laughs> and not have to get up at 2 a.m. to do that. And I'm curious, um, a couple of you mentioned about misconceptions that are going on, and I'm curious, Like what you're thinking about education, what are the major misconceptions that you're seeing about electric vehicles? What can I do to help with that (laughs) education outreach around misconceptions? Anybody who'd like to share on that? Thank you. Yeah, so as I said, a lot of the misperceptions are around how they handle winter, how they handle the snow. Um, so, one of the things we did was just let our members speak for themselves. So we did four videos with different folks answering these exact kind of questions. Um, that's on our youtube and our and uh, our online as well on our website. Um, we have we also there was a transportation fair at um, for the Matsu. We had one of our members bring their Tesla there, so people were able to um, sit in it learn about it from somebody who was actually driving a Tesla, Um, see how comfortable it was. There was little kids playing video games on the screen. Um, They they were very excited about that feature. So um, we're just starting our education campaign on it. Again, um, our goal is just really to educate members about about the questions that they have. And so we're just getting that started. But I think it's definitely an important factor.
5: Uh, I think it would be great, like, uh, at the beginning uh, of the um, Sheena's presentation, she said that more than 50% of greenhouse emissions come from uh, combustion engines now. And uh, folks see climate change happening and they're worried and concerned, and they ask what they can do. And, you know, installing a charger, electric vehicle charger, is like the coolest thing you can do to fight climate change. So that's why I think folks should, um, you know, get involved installing Electric vehicle charging uh, chargers like one in Wasilla, one Wasilla would be good. <laughs> Wasilla again, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. So I think like it's like a tangible thing you can do to make things better to speed up this kind of transition towards electric vehicles. And the electric vehicles are great to drive, and they perform just as good as in, as a gasoline gasoline vehicle or or better at times.
4: Just to add on, I mean, I think I, I highlighted winter driving and things, but really when you look at why our members who own the electric vehicle, the 52, decided to, it was economics. And I think helping people understand the economics through those case studies is another big part of education. I wanted to add that we're also working on a ride and drive
2: event. Um, so we're working with, uh, the municipalities, working with uh, Matanuska Electric Association, Municipal Light and Power. And we want people to get out and be able to drive them. um, Because if you haven't driven them, it's a really cool opportunity. You see how they handle So that helps with some of the misconceptions. Uh, We don't have that information yet, so we're working on it. The kindergartners cannot drive it. One
7: Thing I wanted to mention about the uh, charging is I understand that in several s- charging stations um, outside and stuff, they use uh, used EV batteries to store electricity, so they don't have that peak, so they don't need the, the demand charge. It just they, uh, but they do have to pay for batteries up front before that. So anyway, just wanted to mention that.
4: And there actually is a a charging provider that's working with Launch Alaska that has storage in addition to the the direct charge. And so um, we've been talking to them about the possibility of what a pilot could look like in our service territory.
1: I think we have time for maybe one more question. Last one.
6: What percentage increase are you anticipating needing to provide for the electrical generation, and uh, what plans are you making to, uh, to either implement that in terms of your uh, power generation or your grid capacity to transmit the additional power and um, to provide clean power for the additional power over the next 10 or 20 years?
3: Um, I, I think that at this point, We've run some preliminary numbers and, and uh, in the near term, um, it would take a significant, um, 10 or 15% penetration into the auto market in Alaska would result in a seven or 8% uh, increase in our load. Um, that's probably reasonable in the next you know, five or six, seven years um, and those are not hard numbers, those are kind of, did, I did some back of the envelope calculations um, we just completed reconstructing the generation fleet in Alaska. Virtually all the, the, the utilities have new generation, and we have, we sized capacity into that for load growth. So I, I would say it, in that EV load growth isn't developed enough for us to integrate that into wasn't wasn't developed at the time to integrate it into that plan. And the next tranche of generation will probably be built uh, 15 or 20 years from now, and so. We'll just have to monitor it as it goes along. And obviously, if it if, if it exceeds capacity, we'll bring in, we'll, we'll accelerate those plans and bring in more generation. But it sort of fell, this falls right at the beginning of a generation cycle, electrical generation cycle.
4: Um, and I think right now, each of the utilities is actually seeing mostly declining load growth due to either energy efficiency or weather. And I think we're still trying to define the different components of that. MEA is actually seeing an increase, or almost flat, a little bit of an increase in our load, but that's primarily because we're still adding new members. We're experiencing a period of growth. But our typical member used to um, use 696 kilowatts, and now they're using 650. And so we've seen the per member uh, load decline. And so it's something that from a load perspective, again, it depends on the penetration of, of vehicles Um, as we as brian said we've just all built um, gas fired more efficient generation Um, but we are still open and negotiating constantly with independent power producers and so while it may not make sense for mea to build anything new um, it does make sense if somebody can produce the power cheaper for us to buy it from them Um, And so that doesn't incur any additional capital costs to our members, but it allows us to reduce costs. And so part of it will depend on independent power producers and the market and what kind of costs and economics they can bring, but we're absolutely open to the entrance of um, economic renewable power. And
3: just to add to what Julie said, I think on the Chugach system, we've seen a 10% decline in load over the last uh, seven or eight years primarily, we believe, due to LED lighting, which is really um, kind of nerdy, but it's a phenomenal change. When you take something that used to consume 60 or 70 watts and it now consumes 10 or 15, that, that's almost unheard of in, in, as a technological advancement. But we've seen quite a decline over the years. So, um, you know, we see this as a way to stabilize load. And like, like MEA, um, our, our meter count is growing, but our load has been declining. And I think our 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 uh our average customer used to consume seven hundred and fifty KW, the average monthly uh consumption, and now we're at we, we're at five hundred and fifty. So it's it's been a significant decline over the last few years. We
2: use two hundred. Are we wrapping up, Greg?
1: Yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um a reminder, yeah. Uh, October 24th is our next event. It'll be on the fourth floor here. Uh, And yeah, thank you to our panelists. Let's give them all a, a big round of applause.
0: Thank you for tuning in to REAP's new podcast, Renewable Radio. Please subscribe to the remainder of the season to learn about building a clean energy economy, pathways to clean energy in the rail belt, tidal and hydrokinetic energy, and building science in Alaska. We also have new content in the works. We'll be looking at the history of the Railbelt Electric Grid, how it operates today, and what changes are in the works that will help bring more renewable energy to the grid that serves 80% of Alaskans. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.